Jesus, we have come to worship you this morning, but we're only here because you've made a way. So as, as we look at your word, we ask that um, we would be able to come and adore you for who you are, that we would see you clearly, we would love your truth, and we would be brought to a place of worship, not just a place of having more facts and more information about you. Help me as I preach to proclaim it with clarity and with boldness. I pray for everyone who's listening, either online or here in person, that you would just remove distractions, you would allow your word to penetrate our hearts and to point us to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's it. Right, Chad, like I said, Chad didn't mess up. It's not, not some kind of like weird mind-numb-chucking trick that we're trying to pull on you here. Like, wait, you're supposed to read more than that. Um, I am curious, though, that a show of hands, is there anybody here who would say, yeah, I've heard a sermon on Matthew 1.1 and Matthew 1.1 alone? Does anybody remember that? Well, I don't know who's at home raising their hands, but based on the survey of the room, I can guarantee you, based on this statistical analysis, that this will be the best sermon you've ever heard on Matthew 1.1. <laughs> the pessimists might use the same logic to reach a different conclusion, but that's, um, that's another, another issue. Um, why are we here? What, what, what are we doing? The, the critical part I want us to latch on to is this son of David, son of Abraham part. Right? So that, that'll be what we really latch on to. And when we open up Matthew, we come to this genealogy of Jesus, or as Pastor Chris would like to say, a, a Hebrew phone book. Right? And, and most of us don't think of genealogies as anything more than some data and some information for us. Doesn't that seem like what they're built to be? Here's some key information. Here's some data for you. And my, my premise this morning is that Matthew 1.1 and Matthew 1.1 alone is not meant to merely give you information. Think about that. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, is actually meant to capture your awe for Jesus Christ. That's what it's there for. And, and it, it seems a bit odd. Like, how, how is that going to work, Justin? How is that supposed to be? And to be able to explain that, we're going to have to spend a, a fair amount of time getting the backstory to it. Right? It, it's like if you were dropped into a foreign country and you saw a billboard with an announcement on it. It's like, okay, why, why is that there? What does that mean? Well, it's going to take a second for you to get the backstory to get why that billboard is significant. That's kind of what we have. Like this, this big billboard, here's the New Testament. Okay, now, now, why is that there? And what does that mean? Let's, let's do some digging in the Old Testament to get there. So if, if you're new to Christianity, if you're new to the Bible, you're not sure what all of this is, Matthew 1.1 is the start of the New Testament. It's a newer section of writings that simply come after the older section of writings. And so the, the older gives us the context of here's what we're doing here in Matthew 1. And so, so to set the stage, what we're going to do this morning is I'll take about the next 20 minutes to sort of track this story of son of David, son of Abraham, through the Old Testament. And th there will be a few main points, but it's not like a, a three-part outline where you, you jot it down as we go. We're just kind of tracking the story uh, along the way. But when we're done, if I've done my job well, you'll read Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. 
And you'll be filled with awe in a fresh way that maybe you haven't been before. That's what we're after this morning. All right, so let's go back to the beginning and track this story in the Old Testament. We know at the, the very, very beginning, go all the way back to the beginning, God creates the whole world and everything in it out of nothing. He places Adam and Eve in this garden paradise. And he walks with them in the cool of the day and he's with them. And they decide, yeah, this is pretty good, but we actually want to do things our way, not your way, God. Right, that's the entrance of sin into the world. Humans rebelling against God, a pervasive theme throughout all of history. And fall, flowing out of that, you start to get some main storylines that we'll see throughout the whole Bible. Three of them in particular we see coming up. The first one being ethics. Right? Adam and Eve were told to live in a certain way, and they chose not to live that way. They wanted to live their own way. And so how do we get back to the right way we're supposed to live? And then secondly, the presence of God. God was with them in the garden. They got kicked out of the garden because of their disobedience. And so the rest of the Bible is then tracing, well, how do we get back to the presence of God? And then third, this issue of death. Because they disobeyed God, they'd been removed from his presence in the garden, then ultimately they would die. And so the Bible is following these storylines of how do we get back to right ethics, the presence of God, and how do we conquer death? And that's sort of what we're going to see unfold over the next thousands of, of years in the writing of the scriptures. I think that the most succinct way you can state this is what G.B. Caird said. and See it on the screen there. He says, sin, ethics, separates the human race from God, presence of God, and death is the final severance. That, that's the plot line that gets laid out. Here's the interesting thing. If you're not yet a Christian... These plot lines of ethics, presence of God, conquering death, this is actually the story of all humanity, not just a story that is found in the Bible. So you may not believe the Bible yet. You may not be on board with everything of who Jesus is yet. But this is actually the recurring plot lines of the entire human story. Let me just take a second and show you a bit about that. Right ethics is what one of the main things that humanity has been after. Right, just take a look at a couple of cultural examples right now. Maybe you've driven down the road and seen a sign like this. In this house, we believe love is love, black lives matter, no human is illegal, science is real, women's rights are human rights, and in a world where you can be anything, be kind. Now, there's a whole set of worldview assumptions that go into that and political undertones. I don't mean to touch any of that, but just to say, underneath that, what do you see there but a cry for right ethics? Somebody making this statement believes that if we can get to this kind of an ethical way of living our lives, the world will be a better place and we have to work together to get there. Do you see that underneath? It's a cry for right ethics. Or you could look on the other side, some more conservative viewpoint. Picture taken just yesterday. A march in Washington, D.C., holding the sign, Stop the Steal. Again, without commenting on any of the political undertones, the worldview, any of that, what is that a longing for? Right ethics. This isn't right, the way this is being conducted. And if we can get back to right ethics and stop a fraudulent election, they say, then the world will be a much better place. So whether you're on the right or the left, this story of humanity is getting back to right ethics. How do we find them and where are they at and how do we get them more broadly enforced and implemented, right? but also to conquer death. Right? Why is it that among 
among the, the year 2020, we have thrown so many resources at stopping COVID. Why is it? We don't want to die. We want to conquer death, right? Pretty straightforward. It's taken what has been this sort of a deeper human longing and just brought it straight to the surface. I was, I was doing some research yesterday and, and saw this. In 2016, there was actually a group formed called the Coalition for, catch this, Radical Life Extension. The Coalition for Radical Life Extension. They, they believe that if you take enough supplements and make enough good lifestyle decisions, that within our generation, we can live to be 150. And within a couple of generations, we could live well over 200 years. The founder of this organization is a guy named James Stroll. Listen to what he said. He says, the deathist paradigm has to go. It's time to look beyond the past of dying to a future of unlimited living. So you see it at a mainstream level in how we approach COVID and in more of a, a fringe level and like, we can conquer death and live forever. You just gotta take 600 supplements a day. All right, good luck. But it's not just a story limited to the Bible is my point here, right? Like this is the story of humanity. And lastly, presence of God. This we say, okay, Justin, I was with you on the whole right ethics thing and conquering death. I see how that's the story of humanity, but so much of humanity doesn't even believe in God. So how could they be trying to get back to the presence of God? Well, it takes a little bit different shape, but all of us have got something in mind of this is functionally what heaven is like. A functional heaven. If I'll get there, I'll have made it. And so we find a functional savior that will take me to my functional heaven. Right? Something that will cure our anxiety, something that will numb our fears or speak to our depression. And if I could get rid of those things, then function, I'd be in heaven. And so whatever it is that takes me there is my functional savior. Or maybe it's the, the euphoria of success is my functional heaven. And so whatever achievement I find is my functional savior that takes me to that functional heaven. It's getting me back to the presence of God, just in a more secular way. The interesting thing about all of this is it doesn't matter what rabbit trails we chase down as a replacement for the presence of God, none of them will ever work. And you can chase and chase and chase and chase anything you want as a functional heaven that that's where things will finally be the way they're supposed to be and a functional savior of anything on this earth to get you there. But it will never work. I found an interview that uh, Tom Brady did a number of years ago. I know it's, it's dangerous to quote Tom Brady in an in Indianapolis church. Um, but he did this interview at age 27. And listen to what Brady said at age 27. He says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean... Maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think, God, it's gotta be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. See a guy at the pinnacle, he's got it all. Everything you could dream of, every functional savior we would all dream of that would get us to a functional heaven, he says, yeah, this can't be it. Like, it's just, it doesn't work. He wants to get back to the presence of God. We all do. And we're trying to find where that's at.
And so this right here is where the the Bible storyline intersects with the deepest longings of the human heart. To get back to right ethics, how do we conquer death and how do I get to the presence of God? It's a desire for these things to be made right, but they're only, hear me, they're only made right in the presence of God. So the central storylines of the Bible, like I said, intersect with the central storylines of humanity here. And so maybe you've heard of the Bible as a set of rules, and while there are rules in the Bible, the Bible is much more than a set of rules. It's speaking to our deepest longings because God created us to long for these things. But they're only found in Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. So when we long for these things, we're actually longing for him. So with these plot lines established, we've laid the groundwork, right? Stuck with me for a second. Okay. Now let's pick up the storyline back at the beginning because these were Genesis 1 through 3. That's where the story's kind of laid out. Now let's track the story through the Old Testament, how we get to this announcement in Matthew 1 that feels sort of bland, like Chad reads it, and you're like, uh, you missed something, Chad. But the initial readers read it, and they go, whoa, he's here. How does that transformation happen? Let's dive in. Genesis 3.15, as soon as Adam and Eve rebel, turn away, God makes a promise. He says, I'm going to send a descendant of yours, Eve, who will crush Satan's head. It's the first gospel. Theologians call it the proto-first evangelium. Gospel. Genesis 3.15. And so from that point forward, all humanity is looking for this descendant of Eve that will bring us back to right ethics, presence of God, and conquer death. And so what happens in Genesis 4? You look to Eve's descendants. Oh, let's fix everything. Except instead of fixing it, Cain kills his brother Abel. And so instead of conquering death, they enter deeper into death. And he receives a curse. And you you, you go on and on up until Noah and God says, this is not working. I'm going to give you a fresh start. He wipes the earth clean and you get a fresh start for Noah and his family. Almost immediately, the same exact cycle happens, not of right ethics, not of conquering death, not of getting to the presence of God, but turning and running the other way. And so in Genesis 12, God intervenes in a brand new, fresh way. He goes to Abram. He says, I'm going to make a covenant, a special promise with you, Abram. And I'm going to intervene, and I'm going to start to work to bring about these promises that I made to Eve through you and your people. He makes four promises. He promises land to Abram and his people. He promises offspring that will become a great nation. Two, three, offspring, and then becomes a great nation that will be a great blessing to all the nations. And basically, that's the book of Genesis, tracking through how does this development of Abraham's family come about? How's the land coming into it? How's the offspring and the descendants becoming a great nation supposed to bring this great blessing? When you get to the book of Exodus, you pick up, And you find the people are gathered, but they're not in the land that's promised. They're in Egypt. This doesn't feel right. You get into Egypt, and one of the descendants, Moses, appears to be this deliverer. He delivers them from death as they cross out through the Red Sea. They go over to the other side. That ends in about Exodus 12 to 15 range. And then shortly thereafter in Exodus, if you'll recall, what comes next? The Ten Commandments. Exodus 19 through 24, it's called the Mosaic Covenant. So you get your first covenant with Abraham, now a covenant with Moses. 
And to the Israelite, you're looking at it thinking, is this the descendant? He's delivered us from death, and now we're getting these ethics that we've been looking for. Maybe this is it. And after the Mosaic covenant is given with all these ethical commands, do you know what the rest of the book of Exodus brings us into? How to build a tabernacle. What happens in the tabernacle? The presence of God dwells. Do you see how this storyline is shaping up to be so promising? We've just been delivered from death. Now we have the ethical demands we're looking for. And now we get into the presence of God in the tabernacle. And the book of Exodus ends, Exodus 40. It's on the screen. Listen to this. This is amazing. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So when Exodus closes, you feel like you're right on the cusp of everything that we've been after, right? Yet there's a problem. Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden because sinful man couldn't live with holy God. And so in Leviticus, God speaks to that problem. He says, how can sinful man live with holy God? Well, through this priestly sacrificial system. Here's how we can be together. The book of Numbers then shows how the Israelites disregard what God says and through human weakness and a lack of faith, keep getting off in the weeds and getting everything messed up. So then the book of Deuteronomy is a series of speeches saying, I gave you the law, but here's how you're supposed to interpret it and here's how you're supposed to do it because you keep not doing it. And so we're on this trek to get back to right ethics, conquering death, presence of God. Makes sense. Okay, I'm seeing where we're at here. Now, maybe at this point, just pause for a second, maybe you're beginning to see the Bible is, is, is bringing about this incredible storyline, and it's not just a dusty old book that's a set of rules. Maybe you've never heard somebody explain how the Bible gets started. Like, you're like wait, like there's a uniting theme to it? Like it's building towards something and we're looking for who is this seed of the woman, this descendant of Eve that will bring all this to bear. Yeah, that's what it's about. Let's keep going. Joshua and Judges, you jump in and what happens? God begins to deliver victories to his people. Again, if you're not familiar with the Bible, this is where you find the battle of Jericho. Pretty classic, like mainstream, good amount of knowledge about this. Like This is where you find God delivering these miraculous victories. And yet, despite God giving these great victories, we find in Judges that the people continue to go their own way. And so the very last verse in the book of Judges, Judges 21-25, says this. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So you look back and say, what did God give to everyone? To humanity, he gave them a perfect garden paradise. And they messed it up. And then he gave them a fresh start. And they messed it up. And then he gave them this perfect ethical code with a great deliverer, Moses. And then his next great deliverer, Joshua. And they kept messing it up. He's proving no matter what I give you, you can't do it on your own. 
And so what does he then give coming out of the book of Judges? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in the land. Fine, I'll give you a king. Because maybe if there was a king, then he could enforce these right ethics. And if we could get this ethical thing figured out, then maybe we could conquer death and get back to the presence of God. So you get into the book of 1 Samuel and you see the rise of David. And this, this David character seems to be just infused with hope. He shows up at the the battle against Goliath where Goliath is representing all these enemies of God. And the people are terrified. They don't know what to do. And so what does David do? He enters into the battle and he doesn't just defeat Goliath who's, again, representing these enemies of God and Satan in particular. When David picks up his sword and chops off Goliath's head, do you think those Israelites are not thinking, oh, he's the seed of the woman that will crush Satan's head? This is the great enemy, and his head has been crushed. Maybe he's the guy. Maybe it's what all history has been building to, this David guy. He's our true king. 2 Samuel 7, we come. It's the next major covenant that we bump into. And God comes to David and says, here's what I'm gonna do through you. We'll read that in a second. But but again, just put yourself in those shoes. It's all been building, building, building. And is this the guy? Is he the one? 2 Samuel 7, here's what we read. It's on the screen. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So there's great hope in this, but it's a bit of a twist as well. Because it's not David says the covenant, it's David, your offspring, your descendant I will raise up, right? But there's a promise that David's descendant will rule over an eternal kingdom. It'll never pass away, no matter how much he messes up. If he messes up, he'll be disciplined, but it'll never go away. And this descendant will build a house for the Lord where the presence of God can dwell. This descendant will even be called God's son. So we pick up who's David's descendant. Well, it's Solomon. And what does he build in 1 Kings 7 and 8? Not just a a temporary tabernacle, but a permanent, immaculate temple. Here's where God can dwell. And we've never seen anything like it. This truly is worthy of the glory of the Lord. And you think, is this the guy? Is he the descendant of David that will usher us back? He's the wisest man that's ever lived. So if any king can get us into the right ethics that we've been searching for, certainly it's Solomon. Do you remember what was promised to Abraham? Land, seed, nation, and blessing to all people? We haven't touched that last one, blessings to all people yet, have we? First Kings 7 and 8, Solomon builds the temple. Do you know what happens in First Kings 10? The queen of Sheba comes to check it out and say, Is this guy really as great as everybody says? And she's amazed. So to the initial Israelite, you're there saying, wait a second. 
The, the nations are now beginning to be blessed and the queen of Sheba is coming and seeing this and she's being blessed by it and she's gonna take it out. This must be ushering in this kingdom we've been waiting for. And as soon as the queen of Sheba departs, 1 Kings 11 enters in and it begins telling all the ways that Solomon made poor choices, chasing after women and wealth and war materials. I'm gonna do it my own way. In many ways, he just repeats everything that happened in Joshua and Judges. So, so if we pause and we just, again, step back and look, what has God graciously given to humanity up to this point? Paradise garden with God? Check. Fresh start with Noah? Check. Created a special people out of nothing? Check. Gave them his perfect law? Check. Gave them explanations on how to obey the law? Check. Handed them victories at every turn? Check. Gave them kings to rule them? Check. See, the point should be really clear. What they needed was not new kings or new laws or a different infrastructure. They themselves needed to be made new. It wasn't an external problem that could be solved with an external solution. It was an internal problem. And until that happened, that internal solution was realized. No garden paradise, no fresh start, and no rules could ever fix their problems. I wonder if you've recognized that this morning. You're running, you're running, you're racing. You're looking for the better relationship, the better job, the better school. the better something, and you are not ready to admit that the, the problem that actually needs to be dealt with is internal, it's not external. See, our story, my story, your story, is really not that different than the story of the Israelites. It's really not that different. And the, the rest of the Old Testament just follows this pattern of bad kings making bad decisions and foreign armies coming in and destroying the Israelites, taking them captive and deporting them off to some other foreign land. There's terrible oppression that occurs. There, wicked things are done. Even in the hopeful sections, like, like Ezra and Nehemiah, where they return back and they start to rebuild the temple, even in those, both Ezra and Nehemiah refer to themselves and Israel as slaves. They're looking around and what seems so hopeful now seems so hopeless because everything had been building and you could see how it was coming to this point of here's where we're actually gonna find these right ethics and here's how we're gonna conquer death and here's how we get back to the presence of God. And it's building, 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 building. It's all coming together. Solomon, you're supposed to be the guy. And then it seemingly just falls off a cliff. The people aren't together anymore. There is no king. Wickedness rules over the face of the earth. And if you're an Israelite person, you have to be thinking, God, I saw how you were working in my life. I saw how this was building. I saw how you were bringing me to this place. And we've just made enough foolish decisions that you've said, fine, deal with the consequences. And we're living with them. And it's pretty depressing to deal with the consequences of our choices, isn't it? I really don't want the consequences of my choices many times, and neither did the Israelites. But it actually gets a little bit worse. Because after the prophets end, do you know what we get from God? 400 years of silence. 
God, I saw how you were building towards something. And I saw you let me have some consequences, but I've not seen you in a long time. Generation is born, lives, dies, never hears from God. Next generation, born, lives, dies, never hears from God. Generation, 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 400 years. Has God forgotten? Or worse, has he remembered and been so angry that he just said, forget it, I'm done with this project? What's the deal? I wonder if this story at this point, I wonder if it mirrors your story just a bit. Have you seen God at one point in your life working, doing stuff, building towards something? And you know you've made some bad choices. And you feel like you've had to deal with the consequences for your choices. But now it feels like God has gone silent. You don't know where he's at. You're not sure he's still interested or if he cares or if he's doing anything at all or if he's just letting you spiral. Maybe everybody can look at your life and see that you're a mess. They see the way your relationships are just falling apart. They, they see the way you're making destructive choices but maybe nobody knows you're a mess. After all, you are here on Sunday morning at church on a cold day. Like cer Certainly you've got it at least semi together, right? We tell ourselves. But on the inside, your life is crumbling with secret sins and broken relationships. And so when we sing a song like the one we just sang, it says, do you feel the world is broken? We do. Man, you know that. Do you feel the shadows deepen? Maybe you're scared to admit it out loud, but you do. That next line, you struggle to believe. That says, but do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? You say, I don't know. It seems like all the dark in my life has stopped the light from getting through. This son of David, this son of Abraham that's supposed to come and, and bring all of these things? I don't know. I don't know if he's there or not, or if he's ever coming. And after 400 years of silence, God speaks. And what does he say? Very first words, first sentence of the New Testament the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. <laughs> He's here. You've been waiting. You've been looking. You thought it was building. Maybe you thought it was, it was Moses or David or Solomon or one of these guys. And maybe you thought God forgot. And maybe you thought he was angry and had moved on and was somewhere else. He's here. You've been waiting. And he's come. And I've not lost sight. And I always keep my promises, and I'm going to. Do you see how the first readers, they read and say, son of David, son of Abraham, this is our king. He's going to bring the right ethics. He's going to conquer death. He's going to take us back to the presence of God. 
And sure, the New Testament says a ton about what that will look like. And it colors in between the lines and puts it in full color for us. But just that opening statement, they say, he is here. We've been waiting. Come thou long expected Jesus. Born to set thy people free. He's the son of David. Because when every source of hope falters, his kingdom, his throne is eternal. And so all of our experiences of seeing the things we hope in faltering, we find a better son of David here where that hope will never falter. And no matter how much we stumble, no matter how much we turn aside, this son of David will guarantee our entrance into the presence of God. And no matter how many rabbit trails we've been down, how many mountains we've tried to climb, how unsuccessful we've been in those ways, he's going to get us there. And this son of Abraham, he'll bring a blessing to all the nations. And no matter how much they hate God, and no matter how much wickedness they perpetrate across the globe, they can't outrun his mercy. This son of Abraham, he will create a worshiping people for himself. And so all of your failures can't overcome his grace because he's creating a worshiping people for himself out of nothing, not out of your good works. These are all the things that are promised about this son of David, son of Abraham. But God the son doesn't just have things promised about him. He delivers on his promises. He fulfills the ethical demands that we couldn't. He lives the perfect life that we know we're supposed to live and we're striving to live, yet always fall short. And if by faith we'll trust in him, he says, I've lived the perfect life and I'm giving you this perfect life. You are now righteous. You found right ethics in me and I've given them to you. This Jesus is the very presence of God. He says, you can't get to me, so I'll come to you. He comes down and then promises to come back another day and usher us into the eternal presence of God. You've been trying to find your functional savior to get to your functional heaven. Here's the real one. I'm here. And no matter how hard you try to put me down, and put me to the side, and your religious leaders try to kill me in conjunction with the Roman government, I may die, but I'm going to rise again, and I will conquer death. And if you are united by faith to me, you'll never die either. He's here. Does that capture your awe? Does it at least intrigue you enough to say, Justin, I need to hear some more about this guy? Because I don't think I've ever heard news that's that good before in my life. You ought to be asking if you're not. You ought to be asking, how can I get in on this? Because the way you lay it out is, this is what we've been after our whole life, the right ethics, the, the conquering death, the presence of God, and now it's brought together in the person of Jesus. But of course, there are other things here demanding our awe, pulling us aside, Right? The cults are good again. It's Frank Reich and Philip Rivers. They got your awe. The vaccine got started this week. Does distribution plan have your awe? 
NASDAQ is up 40% this year. Does that got your awe? What has your awe this morning? Oh, come, let us adore him. So we're going to go to communion in a minute here. I just want to invite you. I want to invite you to reflect on this Jesus. The glory of this son of David, son of Abraham. He's the one who will truly complete your story. Your story of searching for right ethics, conquering of death, and the presence of God itself. So you ask yourself, is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? He is the lion of Judah who conquered the grave. He's David's root and the lamb who died to ransom the slave and take you back to the presence of God. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of all this? Friends, he is. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you are worthy. You are whole. You are the only one who can break the seal. You're the only one who can open the scroll. You are the only one who could conquer the grave. You are the lamb who died to ransom the slave. Oh, you are worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and so much more. Jesus, as we enter into Christmas season, may we not just see data and information and genealogies and stories, but awe that you came and you rescued us and you will save us. Transform our hearts. Give us love for you. Bring us to a place of worship. Pray these things in your name. Amen.